When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Ladies and gentlemen, today I welcome along someone who started their career as a 15-year-old in Duffy's Forest Fire Brigade in 1985 in New South Wales, uh, and then went on to lead over 70,000 firefighters through the 2019 and 2025 season. Subsequently, he's been announced as Father of the Year this year. Uh, he's now the head of Resilience New South Wales, and just today has been announced as number three on the most powerful list of Australians by the Australian Financial Review. So I'm talking of Commissioner Shane Fitzsimmons. Welcome along today to Crisis Talks. Uh, good afternoon, Grant. Really appreciate the opportunity to catch up and, and have a quick chat. Now, uh, now, how does that new moniker, number three on that list, sit with you? Oh, look, I, I find, I find uh, things like that all a little overwhelming, to be honest. And, and in, in the scheme of things, um, you know, I just can't lose sight of the fact that the season we went through was just was extraordinarily difficult, very troubling, and indeed tragic for so many people. And like thousands of others, uh, I just had a role. I had a role to do. I had a, I had a, I had a function to do as part of a massive team effort. Uh, and to to hear things like that is still pretty pretty difficult to absorb, to be honest. Well, I think you've been most widely renowned as that real trusted face or trusted voice of that fire season so what do you think contributed to to everyone having that trust and faith in you throughout that difficult period i i think there's a number of things i think i think the unprecedented nature of the fire season for new south wales don't get me wrong we've had we've had worse tragedies in australia before particularly back in 2009 in victoria where 170 six people died in one afternoon and I don't take away from that but for New South Wales we we have just been through the worst ever um, bushfire season unprecedented on so many ways um, uh, fire behavior duration the protracted nature of the fire the geographic spread uh, of the burnt area from the Queensland border to the Victorian border and I think as things intensified as the weeks and months rolled on um, um, we were, myself and the Premier and the Minister and others, uh, we were in people's lounge rooms and on the, on the TVs and, and, and listen, listening in on radio uh, every single day for many, many months of the year. So, so we, were, we were dealing with really difficult, really awful, tragic circumstances um, and trying to be very honest and very open and very clear about what was happening, why it was happening what we could do, what we couldn't do, and most importantly, what we want our other people to do. So, so for me, uh, we were we were really seeking to adopt what I think are some really important leadership principles around authenticity and 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 humility and empathy and those sorts of things. But yeah. communicating as clearly and as sincerely as we possibly could about about the 
the reality of what was unfolding and what was likely to unfold given the weather forecast at the time and 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 the, and, the, and the ongoing fire behaviour. So we just tried to be as honest and as clear and as 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 respectful as well um, um, and appreciative of those that were doing it particularly tough. Men and women on the front line, uh, behind the scenes, working to to bring these things under control and protect everybody, but also those that were losing so much livelihoods, uh, businesses, homes, property, and of course, loved ones. I think one of the key things you mentioned there was that authenticity, but then empathy. I mean, how important is empathy throughout any of these crisis situations? I, I think it's critical. Um, I, I think it's, and for me, the empathy is really, I, I suppose, um, uh, two broad, two broad audiences. So, so when 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 I was when I was standing there doing press conferences on a very regular basis, there was always two principal audiences in my mind. Uh, it was the men and women um, and their families, those that were involved, uh, turning up day after day, week after week, month after month, 24 hours a day we were rotating people around, averaging you know, anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 people per shift day and night, depending on the intensity. You know, my hearts and my admiration were absolutely uh, with those that were doing it on the front line, behind the scenes, in the in the the worst conditions we've ever experienced. So, trying to communicate and relate and acknowledge the extraordinary contribution and the tenacity and the perseverance and the commitment of those people was 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 one of my principal audiences that I kept that I kept thinking about. And then, of course, the second audience uh, was all those that were that were in the path of these fires or, or subject to the spread of these fires, uh, depending on the conditions and. And in that in that vein, um, we saw people, um, you know, we saw huge tracts of land being destroyed, our environment. We saw people's farms, businesses, communities, homes, everything they've ever worked for or or collected in their life was 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 being consumed and converted to ash, and and they were completely dislocated and disrupted and evacuated from 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 their comfort zone, from from their from their place of solace, their place of comfort, being being their home, and of course the extraordinary tragedy uh, that was the loss of 26 lives, uh, including the three aviators and um, uh, four volunteers um, uh, that died in the line of duty uh, in, in really tragic uh, accidents. So so as not only doing those press conferences, but whenever we could get the time, I was circulating through the State Operations Centre. We were out visiting teams in the field, whether they were at the command centres or whether they were at, at, at staging areas or, or out in relief centres and evacuation centres, mixing with the crews that were trying to bring the fire under control, but also mixing with people that were, were distraught and frightened and terrified by what was unfolding in their community. Um, we could generally relate or, or uh, you know, and understand and feel firsthand um, the emotions and the expressions and the, and the despair and... Um, and the fear in people, um, the uncertainty about what was happening, what was unravelling. So, so taking all that on board um, and and recognising as a leader, no matter your level, what you're dealing with, particularly in crises, it's not about you. It's actually about everybody else. It's about your team. It's about your organisation. It's about it's about everyone pulling their weight. And of course, it's about everybody affected and impacted um, uh, by uh, the crisis that's unfolding. How hard is it, you know, coming from the the real operational background that you had, um, and being able to step back and take that more of an enabler or a supporter role um, as you did during that particular season? 
I think I think in the in the fire season, having having had a background as a firefighter and as a volunteer, and 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 having suffered loss myself in 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 a family circumstance with my with my own dad losing his life uh, in a routine hazard reduction burn, not 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 a not a not a significant bushfire event, but they're the sorts of experiences in the backgrounds that I think enable you to 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 relate to and and appreciate and understand what people might be thinking, what they might be experiencing, how difficult it really is, how 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 high risk nearly all strategies are when it comes to trying to affect protection and support for people and their property and their valuables during fires. So so and mixing with people and and and, and having your own experience with loss in a difficult circumstances, uh, what what that might mean should it happen on your watch and how you might react with people and interact with with teams affected or families affected and 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 for me, um, you know, the, the the decades of time that I'd been involved in the organisation, I think I think really helped me uh, in in trying to in trying to exercise uh, what I think are you know half a dozen you know key leadership traits when it comes to to leading normally, but certainly leading in a crisis because because much of what happens in a crisis in a leadership sense, the culture of leadership in an organisation. Um, you know, cracks or gaps become very big crevices and 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 caverns. You know, um, uh, but similarly, you know, solid foundations of of the the more positive traits. Um, everything gets amplified or magnified depending on how you're looking at it in a crisis. So, if you if you've got the very best you can underpinning it, then it'll shine through in 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 those leadership traits and and building trust and confidence with your teams and. And your customers or the community, as was the case with us. So, what are those sort of six leadership traits you're talking about there, or you're reflecting upon? Yeah. So, so for me, Grant, you've already touched on one of them. I think I think authenticity trumps trumps almost everything. So, so people people want to know the real you as a leader. They they want to know and understand your weaknesses. People accept and understand your weaknesses. Uh, and they also they also look to your strengths and your capabilities. So, so as an individual in authenticity and leadership, it's actually about keeping it real. It's actually about being it's actually about being honest and truthful, um, knowing and understanding your own limitations, uh, and surrounding yourself with with the gaps that you might have with good people and and good knowledge and good insights. But it's also about the authenticity of messaging and communication to make sure you're not sugarcoating things that are really are really crappy, you know, because people will see through that straight away. So, so if you're not being true to yourself uh, and you're not being true to your to your teams and your audience and your customers, then they're going to see right through that. So authenticity matters. Even if you've got a few bumps and bruises and a few niggles, people will accept that because they know it's you. That's always been my view. I think the second big trait is centres around humility and empathy, which we've also talked about. As leaders, it's not about us. It's actually about everybody else. Um, and and that the the core to leadership centres around people, um, and and when we talk about others, it's our teams, uh, it's our supervisors, it's our subordinates, our colleagues, uh, and of course, um, um, you know the community, uh, the customer, uh, all the time. I think mutual respect is another uh, key attribute um, uh, for leaders, and there's a there's a great old phrase that my mum used on my sisters and I growing up. Manners cost you nothing, but the lack of them can cost you everything. And and as we migrate into adult life and, and we become leaders in our own right, um, I think I think that whole manners equation, that, that thing that was drilled into me as a kid, really comes through 
uh, in mutual respect, understanding views and opinions and different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different all manner of differences really matter and and that shines through in volunteer organizations it you know there is something very powerful about mixed teams and 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 highly adaptive skilled teams understanding different views different perspectives being able to prosecute a case or an argument or drill down to what matters if you can do it respectfully if you can do it with courtesy and civility you've got a, you've got a much better way of engendering um, engagement and support uh, from a broad team Similarly, in, in, in mutual respect, the fourth area that I would talk about would be the criticality of making uh, decisions and taking action, uh, particularly in a crisis. Do nothing is not an option. Um, um, and we know there are invariably time pressures and other constraints, and you've got to have the confidence to make decisions, to back decisions, to take action, to back actions, um, um, knowing that there is inherent risk uh, to many of them, particularly in a in an extraordinary event like unfolding um, bushfires and, and and very fast running bushfires, dynamic bushfires, and and I use the analogy of the flat tire here when I talk about decisions and actions, and and there's there's reviews that I think Harvard did it over the years where they identify across business, um, uh, private and public sector around the world, one of the biggest deflators to motivation and frustration in the workplace is where management won't make decisions and they won't take action actions. Um, they, they, they stagnate and they procrastinate. They don't do anything about poor behaviour or poor performance. So it's that indecision and inaction that really frustrates people. And, and the flat tyre for me, if it's flat, sometimes that decision or that, or that intervention might just be as simple as, as reinflating the tyre, you know, making sure it's okay and everything rolls along. Sometimes we've also got to reach the conclusion that, that it might need a puncture repair. So your intervention is going to be a little bit more intrusive, a little bit more decisive. You've got to get in there, repair the, repair the hole, reinflate it, and then that'll go on as well. But I think also we've got to be brave enough to identify when we, when we realise the tyre's stuffed and it's time to get a new one and chuck the old one out uh, and put that tyre on the wheel and reinflate it and away we go. And what do I use a flat tyre? Well, it might be a... It might be a single person thing if you're on a unicycle, but if, if that flat tire is sitting on the bus that's carrying your team, that's carrying your department, that's carrying your, your organisation, then no one's going anywhere until management or leadership, you know, makes the decisions, takes the action to fix that flat tire and let everybody move on and know what the, know what the course is. I think the, the fifth thing is absolutely around communications communicating as much and as often as we possibly can using multiple channels internally and externally. During the crisis, we committed very much to communicating on a very regular basis. For me, the focus in communicating all the time was those couple of audience, broad audiences we talked about earlier, but it's actually about being really open and honest about, you know, what's the latest update? What do we know? Most importantly, what we don't know. Um, what, are, what can we expect given the forecast? Uh, what are we doing about it? Uh, what can't we do about it and therefore not doing and why? And then most importantly, what do we want people to do, particularly those that might be threatened or in harm's way? So we tended to stick to a script in that regard around communicating openly, honestly, authentically was really important. And then the final thing that I'll, I'll say, my, my sixth characteristic in leadership, which I don't think is talked about often enough, is the word care, C-A-R-E. Leaders need to genuinely care. They need to care about their team. They need to care about their organisation. They need to care about the role that they've got. And most importantly, they need to care about the, 
the challenges and the tasks at hand and how their team uh, is working to protect their, their customer or, or in our case, the community. So, so if you've got care, it'll, 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 it'll come through in your authenticity. It'll come through in, in your communications, in the way you deal with people, interact with people, how you regard people. So humility and empathy will shine through. Mutual respect will shine through. Manners and courtesy, um, you know, making decisions and explaining why. People are happier with decisions they don't like generally speaking, if they're explained, then no decision at all. So let's get on board and make those decisions and communicate. So they're the half a dozen traits that I think um, are really important and that I've that I've kind of learnt over the years and sought to emulate and try and try and replicate whenever I'm when I'm whenever I'm in a role and, and fulfilling a function. You've stepped in that new role for head of resilience for New South Wales. It's less probably more and I'm probably presuming something here, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but Probably less of a an operational response role and more of a policy role, is it? Or is what's the what does the new role entail? Well, it's a very good question, Grant, because I can say I've been in the role now for five months uh, and it's still evolving. Uh, we've done a lot of work to look at, and I must declare, when I first took on the role, um, I spoke with the premier and the minister and the head of the public service, and they were talking about a new disaster disaster coordination and emergency management organisation to take a much broader remit across government, uh, down through government to local government and communities and industry and business, and then of course connecting up uh, with the Commonwealth um, uh, and our and our national and overseas partners. And I said, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds very interesting. It, it really appeals to me. And particularly given that the primary role at that time was all about recovery and recovery and recovery, uh, helping and supporting people affected by, by the bushfires. So I had a very strong affinity with a lot of people and, and, and it was a natural fit for me. But I must declare that, that just before the announcement, um, it came out that the new agency was going to be called Resilience. And I, I said to the, the, the my masters, I said, what's this bloody resilience? It doesn't resonate with anybody. No one's going to know what that is. Well, I have to eat humble pie because in my in my five months, I've learned very quickly uh, that everybody's got a view on resilience. Mm. Um, uh, they're slightly nuanced, those views on resilience, but they centre around some pretty core themes. And I also learned very quickly that there was a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, I've got this resilience issue. I'm glad you're here. We're going to offload it to you now. So... So it's been a really interesting um, uh, learning exercise over the last few months. But we have done a significant body of work engaging with lots of stakeholders internally and externally about what Resilience New South Wales means in terms of a remit, a role and a function going forward. And we're just in the process of, of finalising that body of work and establishing ourselves uh, properly going into the future. But it's fair to say uh, it really is uh, centred around um, giving confidence and and providing, providing um, a leading role uh, from prevention right through to recovery, uh, giving confidence to communities across New South Wales to live, work and invest. And, and as the lead agency, uh, we're there to be responsible for leading and coordinating disaster management and recovery, making sure we learn from experiences to drive strategies and investment across the state to reduce the risk uh, um, of whatever that, that, that challenge is and build resilience in New South Wales communities so we can better withstand uh, the disruptions and the stresses of external shocks, disasters, emergencies of all kinds, uh, natural and human-induced. And, and the more we can do to, to plan, identify and contemplate what those, what those disasters or those disruptions might be, how we can then better collaborate to invest uh, in, in, in mitigating or ameliorating or reducing the impacts of those 
those events, making sure we've got the best possible response capabilities and, of course, recovery that helps us come out the other side um, uh, better uh, than when we were coming in uh, before the disaster. So, yeah, it's a different role. It's, it's, a, it's a new role and being deliberately positioned as a, an executive agency in Premier and Cabinet, um, it, it's a very deliberate move to make sure we've got reach right across the, the public sector of New South Wales and partnering with our colleagues in different departments and organisations, but also then being able to filter down and connect out with local government, local communities, industry, business, you know, um, not-for-profit organisations, charitable organisations, and then tying us back up into the Commonwealth. So it's still a new and evolving role with a massive amount of work that continues to be delivered by, by some pretty remarkable people right across the state with the significant recovery, rebuilding, repair uh, and healing effort that's going to be going for for many months and years, actually. Oh, and, and notwithstanding the fact that we're also in a response still, essentially, and in, in, in parts of different elements of recovery from COVID, so... Absolutely, and, and, and that's a really important point, Grant, because whilst, whilst there was a big focus, understandably and necessarily, on the bushfires, yeah. what we've got to keep in mind for the people of New South Wales particularly, um, a lot of these areas... There, were, there was communities on their knees with drought. So lots of rural and regional New South Wales leading into last fire season. We were working as whole of government organisations to pre-position bulk water supplies across towns that were close to running out of water and, and contemplating how we were going to increase dry firefighting techniques in the absence of water. So, so the drought was, 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 was awful and profound and, and protracted. Then we went in for the worst ever bushfire season. Then when the fire season finally broke, um, in, in February with some rainfall, welcome rainfall across the state. That resulted in some pretty significant storm damage and flood damage. And because there was denuded landscapes, there was pretty considerable erosion and landslip activity. And then, of course, moving out of February uh, into the second quarter of, of 2020, uh, we really intensified uh, with the implications of COVID-19 uh, and all that comes with responding to and, and, and preventing the spread of, of that awful disease. Um, um, but, but remembering, I think, for some people in New South Wales, they've been affected by all four of those disasters, not just one of them or two of them. Um, yes, everybody's absolutely affected by COVID, but for some of us across New South Wales, some of our people um, talk about resilience. Um, they've been tested and tested and tested and things have compounded, which is why an organisation like Resilience New South Wales has really been framed up and invested in by government to ensure that we can do the very best we can uh, for people with what they're enduring right now, but how we can better position ourselves as individual communities, as the state of New South Wales going forward to build resilience and build capability and build capacity to withstand, respond and, and recover from, from future shocks and, and disasters going forward. The, the challenging part with that is we've seen different efforts at resilience across the different states and jurisdictions over the years. Victoria sort of went to the Emergency Management Commission model sort of post Black Saturday. Uh, Queensland has sort of integrated a lot of their hazard work into EMQ over the years and, and have advanced or otherwise at different stages. Um, the National Disaster Resilience Strategy was actually released in, I think it was 2012 um, in the federal by COAG. Um, so, why has it sort of taken this long, do you think, to, for New South Wales to really bring something like this together? Oh, well, I, th I think it's important to identify that in New South Wales, we have always had uh, an Office for Emergency Management that actually takes that, takes that role of, of, of tying those things together. But I think 
there is no doubt the scale and the magnitude uh, of what we experienced in the last year or two really gave rise to um, it's time to do something different going forward. And, and, and coincidentally, with the onset of COVID, dare I say it, I think it's really reinforced and validated uh, that decision uh, to, to do something on a much more significant scale um, um, and with, with a greater reach um, uh, down and through across the state, but also out to the Commonwealth. And already out of this season, uh, with the review that we've been doing, we've actually had a good look at benchmarking um, inter-jurisdictional arrangements and frameworks. We've gone overseas to look at how how similar or related organisations might be established and functioning. And we are seeking, as the Premier said right from the beginning, we want to be a global leader in how we're factoring in uh, resilience uh, into, into planning, uh, into investment, uh, in, in, into, into, in, into um, uh, response capabilities and capacities, and also uh, rebuilding with betterment and improving uh, through lessons and and learnings from from those disruptions. So absolutely, um, uh, the timing uh, was absolutely prompted by the extraordinary effects of the bushfires, and and understandably and necessarily so. But I think it's also coincided and really validated that thinking process, given the extraordinary implications we've got with COVID. And without being without being too doomsday like or pessimistic, uh, we don't know what's next. Um, and 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 the reality is in a in a world in which we operate. Uh, there are there are always things that are that are there to challenge us. I know in in, in my few months in this new role, uh, there's been a lot more uh, focus and activity uh, in things like uh, critical infrastructure and uh, and cyber threats and cyber security and, and and cyber crime. So 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 it's not just the natural disasters that we've got to be mindful of. We've, we've got we've got to think about how we live, play, invest, work you know, all those sorts of things and interact, the, the level of connectedness and interdependency on on infrastructure and systems and, and programs uh, is really is really something we've got to be focused on and concentrating on as we go forward. Yeah, I think that, uh, look, one of, the, one of the logistical challenges that we face, one of the clients I was working with throughout the fires um, over the season past was uh, with every state that they were traversing through, they had essentially five or six different data sources that they would have to go to in order to determine safety on routes. So, um, I mean, you're seeing it now, you're seeing it with a new eye, you're seeing it now from a, from a new perspective. Um, why can't we get this resilience model right in a country like ours? Oh, look, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of stuff that is, is being done right, but I, I do think I do think the um, um, the nature of pretty extraordinary uh, events of the last 12 months or 18 months has sharpened a focus, and with and with very open and transparent um, independent reviews occurring to look at as broad a remit as we can about learnings and lessons that can come out of those sorts of experiences. What are the sorts of things that we can then do uh, to better ourselves uh, as as local communities, as jurisdictions, as a nation? Um, um, absolutely, uh, that is driving, and and um, I can see, um, like we have in in decades past, um, a significant investment uh, in seeking to improve. And and we know, pardon me, we know today uh, that our that our dependency on data, uh, the accessibility to data, is like we've never seen before. What we've got to do smarter, uh, uh, individually and collectively, is how to better utilise. Um, um, uh, that data 
uh, in terms of planning, contemplation, but also uh, in response analysis and recovery and, and all those sorts of things. So, so absolutely, we will continue to see uh, learnings and lessons out of uh, the sorts of extraordinary events. And we owe it. Um, uh, we owe it to those, uh, particularly those that have lost so much and those that have lost loved ones, to make sure we're very open with, with the learnings and the lessons and we follow through with the implementation. And, and one of the roles that, that we've been given as Resilience New South Wales uh, is to oversee uh, the independent inquiry uh, that was done into the bushfires, um, the 76 recommendations that have been accepted by government. It's our role to oversee uh, the, the implementation of those uh, over the coming years uh, and how we how we improve ourselves as a as a jurisdiction and share that information with our colleagues around the country. The um, after the rubble settles, or whilst you're dealing with these impacts, um, you know the operational response is one thing, but that recovery is another component. And when you're looking at different agency responses, how do you how do you sort of um, help navigate those difficulties across the different agencies and jurisdictions um, in order to deliver an outcome to your clients? So I, I think the, I think the good thing the good thing now is um, as I as I said very publicly during the fires. I've never seen a level of cohesion or integration between government organisations, non-government organisations, interstate uh, arrangements, Commonwealth arrangements. Um, uh, like I've never seen anything like it than what we saw uh, during the last season. And people have said to me, "Isn't that well? Isn't that how it's supposed to how it's got, uh, Isn't that how it's supposed to work, Shane?" And I say, "Yeah, it is." But I've got to tell you, in my decades of experience, it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> yeah. So, so and, and and that really came together in the response sense. But we're also seeing it very much in a recovery sense, whilst, whilst the response effort was unprecedented. And we can't forget the fact that we, we didn't just see 30 or 40 government departments in New South Wales tied together, co-located together every day at a state level and at a, at a local and regional level, but we saw every state and territory seamlessly integrate uh, into operations in New South Wales. We saw the Commonwealth with the largest ever um, uh, assistance um, uh, deployment and mobilisation of resources into the into the state arrangement as well. So the integration and the and the cooperation is, is like we've never seen before. And then add on top of that, New Zealand, Canada, United States, uh, because we've got standard systems, because we've got compatible systems, because we've got universal training and competency levels, volunteer or salary to light, the ability to integrate them and, and have those skills portable across the country and around the globe says a lot about our investment for the last for the last few decades, but whilst I was, whilst I've always had a very strong um, link with the response side of, of the effort, I've also seen very much similarly uh, with the recovery, the rebuilding, um, the repair, and the healing process, and and the, the the unprecedented response has really been matched with an unprecedented level of of, of recovery investment in terms of collaboration, in terms of of fu of funding and programs and initiatives, and the ability to have to have you know multi-billion-dollar uh, programs of investment that are capable of being nuanced because everyone's position is different. Every little community is different. Yes, they might have been impacted by a bushfire, but their impact, their, their predisposition coming into that event is different. Their 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 damage, their their destruction, their needs are different. So having having policy frameworks and constructs that allow us. Uh, to, to, to provide nuanced solutions while still operating at a state and national joint um, 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 uh, supporting framework, I think speaks volumes of where we're at. And I've got to say, Grant, even now, well and truly 
beyond 12 months after the fires impacted communities up in northern New South Wales, we've got people for the first time that are coming to us and saying, I'm now willing to have that conversation. I'm now willing to contemplate the idea of assistance and what might be available. They might have refused it for, for the last 12 months or they might have they might have been, you know, um, somewhere where no one could get to them and they weren't interested in talking to anybody. So so everybody's journey is very different. It's very sensitive. Every, everyone's, everyone is different. Everyone's nuanced. And, and I, I can see some, I've seen some extraordinary partnerships between the Commonwealth and the state and local councils. I've seen extraordinary partnerships between governments and, and private industry, charitable organisations, uh, pooling together to ensure that we're seeking as best as possible to integrate and complement the suite of services and utilise each other uh, to deliver those services whilst, whilst, whilst trying to avoid duplication uh, and, of course, um, um, avoid gaps that might be created because one's thinking they're doing the other. I chair every month uh, a state recovery committee which involves, you know, so many different constituent players into that group uh, and we meet very regularly and we're in daily contact uh, with our national partners in the Bushfire Recovery Office. So, so I've never seen um, a, a collaborative and coordinated recovery, rebuilding uh, and healing effort like, we've, like we're seeing now. And, and while so much is going in uh, to, to, to building of, of homes and, and, and structures and bridges and halls and, and other buildings and things, um, there is this extraordinary investment uh, into the emotional and psychological well-being, welfare uh, and support uh, frameworks and mechanisms that need to be built around people, families, communities, um, uh, and again, uh, the local needs and requirements are different depending on where you go. The, how much has COVID really challenged those that, I mean, the, in a fire situation, you've got a, a very defined threat. How much has COVID really challenged those arrangements, particularly between the states, the federal, et cetera? Has it really challenged those normal command and control arrangements that would exist in a fire? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. So so the, I think the biggest impact that COVID has had uh, has been on some of the uh, uh, field delivery or, or the field interaction options. And I've got to say, as someone who spent a lot of time in the field at, at evacuation centres, relief centres and recovery centres, during the fires, the most profound thing that happens when you visit those centres is the emotional engagement. It's the handshakes, it's the hugs, it's the tears. And when you bring in something like COVID um, and, and we're trying to maintain physical distance, I don't use the phrase um, social distancing. I know where it came from. I know the intent of it, but it sends to me a wrong message, particularly when we've got, when we've got um, isolated, separated communities and communities that are still on a recovery journey from drought and bushfires and all those sorts of things. So, so yes, it's, it's made it challenging in terms of getting into the field and connecting with people and delivering some of our services, but it hasn't stopped us. Um, um, and what I've also seen uh, across, across community, um, like we saw during the fires, um, despite the damage, despite the destruction, despite the devastation, what the fires did bring out was the very best in humanity this extraordinary and overt outpouring of love and support, care and compassion, uh, neighbours to neighbours, uh, strangers, uh, people from outside an area, people from somewhere else around the world, all pulled together. And, and in this COVID environment, um, um, it is absolutely about uh, physical distancing, not social distancing. It's actually about making sure we don't exacerbate 
matters of isolation, loneliness, um, uh, despair, depression, and being conscious about connecting and having online forums and, and, and different forums. So we've seen a big investment uh, in, in that sort of connectedness, which is really important, not just for the workforce, but most importantly, uh, uh, for the citizens, for the for the customers, for the community uh, that are needing and looking for that support and assistance, um, I think I think also uh, we've seen we've seen um, uh, COVID present significant opportunities uh, and and rapid acceleration of changes in 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 online connectedness and sharing of of products and systems and technologies and things like the new national cabinet to 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 collaborate and to share and to to seek to 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 create synergy wherever we can with with policy constructs and decisions and actions to in recognition of the fact that covid is a truly national national disaster it's a global disaster mm-hmm. but as a nation no jurisdictions immune from it and unless we're all working together um, like the bushfires in 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 new south wales we're not going to go and burn and impact south australia and and northern territory and western australia so so it was slightly different in that regard, but but the reality is with COVID, the national collaboration has really been heightened, uh, and I think I think it's a credit to 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 uh, the nation. It's a credit to our political masters who have come together and collaborated, uh, ventilated and made decisions, uh, no matter how difficult, no matter how problematic, uh, in the best interests of, of all of us. How do you um how do how do you sort of uh, straddle that difficulty between the you know the operational role that you used to play, and obviously the the political impact that happened in these sort of circumstances. I know it's not your role, but um, you have to admit you you do touch that. Um, oh, absolutely, and 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 look, and fortunately, um, I I even in my even in my previous role as commissioner of, of the rural fire service and responsible for for coordinating bushfire uh, operations across New South Wales, um, our political leadership. Is critical in the execution of those operational responsibilities. I've always been of that view. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't been on the same page with some of my colleagues in decades past. But I think the reality is, and I, I, I can demonstrate by practice over over my time as my 12 years as commissioner, when we thought something was going to be a very, when we thought the weather conditions were going to present a really bad or high risk day, or we had fires that were very dangerous and destructive and threatening. Um, you know, I was in very regular contact with the minister, very regular contact with the premier, and as a matter of fact, I would often invite them out to say, "I think you need to be with us out here in the state operations centre where we're running everything. Park yourself here, run your business here, because we want to be able to keep you up to date in a very dynamic sense about what's unfolding and why it's unfolding." Because, because Grant, um, you are making decisions operationally that have a profound effect. On the on the, on the functioning of society. So so when you are making decisions to lock areas down, when you're making decisions to evacuate areas, when you're making decisions to close roads and all those sorts of things, you are making those decisions knowing that there are implications to people. There are implications to those living there. There are those that that, that want to travel there. There are businesses. There are there are farming operations. There is tourism. So those decisions weigh very heavily uh, in the operational sense. And to make sure. That we've got our our political leaders, our political masters, um, connected with uh, the strategy contemplation, con- connected with with the, with the risk identification and the potential, and what the decision options are, as limited as they might be, and why they're being taken. In my view, has been absolutely fundamental. And even in my new role, 
the Premier's um, got me as part of her um, uh, Cabinet Crisis Committee as as we as we transition out of the uh, the bushfire environment into the COVID COVID um, uh, response and management environment. And and whilst whilst there are senior politicians, there are also senior public servants uh, that make up that 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 Crisis Cabinet Committee to look at the operational lines, to look at the very broad implications and. And, and the, the implications and the challenges are massive when it comes to COVID. Uh, and so too are the decisions that are taken in the best interest of, of the people of New South Wales or the people of the country, how we tie in at a national level, all those sorts of things. Uh, I do get, get to, to see firsthand still uh, what the decisions and the, uh, and the contemplations are uh, in, in taking action and determining uh, what is what is in the best interest of the community, both in terms of a a health focused sense, but also uh, the emotional and psychological well being, the connectedness with effective and viable economies, because they all tie together. It's it, it, it's it's extremely challenging, uh, and I and I I am I am in awe of the way that that our that our that our political leaders, particularly, um, and I think one of the biggest attributes of leadership in those six things is actually about presence, being there. Um, you know, particularly when things are tough, uh, and, I, and I can see day after day, like the rest of us across Australia, uh, our political leaders are standing up day after day, um, seeking to do the very best they can. I think there's been some challenges, obviously, along the way, and, and in Victoria, where I am as well, there's been a lot of challenges around the cabinet um, function and how that's worked from a decision-making point of view. Um, you know, you being an insider of a very different organisation, obviously, in New South Wales, uh, is it easy to see how some of the shared responsibility concerns that have happened as part of the inquiry would occur? Sorry, what what, what inquiry is that, Grant? Oh, they had the recent inquiry into the hotel quarantine. Down. Oh yeah, yeah. So. yeah look, look, I I, I, re I genuinely can't comment about the machinations of the domestic Victorian uh, arrangements, but I but I do know uh, absolutely uh, everything from quarantining, uh, quarantine arrangements, movement of people. Um, decisions around restrictions on venues and operations and those sorts of things. They are very, very difficult decisions to weigh through and contemplate, guided by health advice, uh, absolutely, uh, but also being taken uh, in the broader interests of, of, of what, is, what is genuinely thought to be the best uh, for saving and protecting as many of the people of New South Wales as possible. And it is, it is as was the case when, when, I, when I looked after the rural fire service, there are a lot of people uh, that, that that do have, you know, a, 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 an expert opinion uh, from the comfort of their lounge chair. Uh, but it's, it's a very different, it's a very different situation when you are when you are charged with the responsibility of making complex decisions in very uncertain uh, and very dynamic circumstances uh, that that you believe are in the best interest of of the people of the state. Is it easier when you've got a very uh, solid construct for command and control? So it's clear there's a command and control arrangement. It's clear there's an agency in control. Um, versus the difficulty we've seen with COVID has been that it's been multi-agency required and it's really a, a, a very um, you know, dynamic environment, as you've said, across all jurisdictions. So is it easier when you're seeing a, a command and control um, and specific sort of environment where you are uh, the control agency, for example, versus what we're seeing with COVID? Oh, look, what, what I would say to that is in New South Wales, we have a very comprehensive um, emergency management legislation, um, planning and policy constructs that guide and, and determine 
uh, those command and control arrangements, as you might say. So, so for example, um, as we transitioned out of the bushfire environment, where where the rural fire service and the commissioner was was the identified lead agency for the bushfire event, as we've moved into COVID, uh, whilst the initial phase was actually about the virus and understanding the virus, health had the lead on 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 the initial phases of that. But but once you saw the implications of that, our 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 planning arrangements then shifted to ensure that we had that we had the appropriate state emergency management arrangements uh, looking at the broader implications so command and control still remained very clear yeah. but but health was absolutely uh, the principal guide around the health the health implications and the concerns with covid and understanding and remembering a lot was being learnt along the way with this and continues to be learnt uh, with this virus but but whether it's a virus whether it's a bushfire whether it's a flood command and control arrangements frameworks structures underpin um, the whole of government multi-agency environment here in New South Wales so it is it is unequivocal uh, who's in charge of what uh, when it comes to determining uh, strategies and decisions and actions um, no matter the disaster or the hazard that might be being dealt with well it's uh, it's been fascinating a few last uh, few last questions to sort of wrap us up for today and, and really appreciate your time and one of the one of the, the big questions that I've really got for you, and one I've always wanted to ask you, is you know, what led you into, or what sort of attracted you to this sort of life of service? That's a good question, Grant. Uh, look, I, I know as a young fella, uh, when I was in my teenagers, my dad was a volunteer in the local bushfire brigade, and and uh, I used to go up there on weekends with him. It was a bit of a hobby brigade. We used to go up there and do maintenance on vehicles and things like that. Um, and then when I was old enough to join at fifteen, I joined up and. And what I found in the organisation um, was a really good sense of belonging. There was a sense of of camaraderie, of family, but there was a sense of purpose. There was there was there was a real there was a real commitment to doing something that made a difference in your local community. And don't get me wrong, it was fun. We had lots of fun. You know, like um, I, I look back now and. You know, back in those days, there was no such thing as, as drink driving standards. There was no such thing as needing to wear seatbelts in cars. So, so we've moved a long way since, and so too as expectations around behaviour and what have you. But, but I really, I really got a sense of a sense of achievement out of out of being part of that organisation. I really thrived in in terms of training and development, and I I moved very quickly into into the delivery of training and the assessment of of competency and helping people grow and develop uh, in skills and what have you. And as it turned out, when I left school, I became a mechanic by trade. I worked in the motor industry for about a decade before I was able to get a full-time job uh, in the organisation um, uh, as part of a, a planning officer environment in the regional area. Uh, and then I stayed with the organisation thereafter, um, having served a variety of different roles, including commissioner. So there's something very special too about volunteers. <clears throat> I think there's there's something to be regarded very much around their professionalism, around their capacity to come together, to get to get a, dedicate time, to commit energy and effort, for the want of nothing in return, but to make a difference in their community, and working alongside their salaried counterparts throughout the last throughout the last fire season really exemplified, um, you know, the very best of culture of volunteerism of mateship. That we are blessed with across this country. So to be a part of that, to be a part of something where people are willing to give of themselves for the want of nothing in return, but to be respected, regarded, and valued—that's a pretty special thing to be a part of. And 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 I think that's really kept me with it for a very very long period of time. 
Yeah, you've uh, certainly left an indelible mark on the community with your work last year and the work you've done within the within the service. Um, what do you see as a sort of legacy that you want to leave um, in your leadership career? I haven't been asked that question before. Um, I, I think for me, um, I, I would I would like to be I would like to be recognised, and I've had it through feedback in the past from my managers, from my ministers that I report to, what they genuinely valued, uh, valued with me was um, my authenticity uh, and what they described as wearing my heart on my sleeve. We never left a meeting where anyone would be uncertain about what was on my mind or what I thought about the issue. So I, I always, I've always led with the very best I can around authenticity, around, around honesty, um, you know, being respectful and inclusive, but ultimately that it was all driven from a sense of of care uh, for 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 the people in the organisation, the people we were we were serving and protecting, and the people we were relying on to do that. So, I suppose in a nutshell, it really was about being real. It was about a focus on trying to look after and improve the want of 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 the team, um, um, communicating as honestly and as openly and as simply as I possibly could, no matter the issue, um, but but knowing that it was coming even if we disagreed, it was coming from a place of care and concern. I do ask everyone that comes on the podcast, uh, if you had a chance to sit down with a leader that lives now or has been in the past a great crisis leader, who would that be and why? There's something that's always fascinated me about Nelson Mandela. And, and, I, and, and I, I would I would love to have a dinner with him if, if I could have. Um, you know, for someone who started out, you know, very much for a cause around, you know, equal rights and, and fairness and was probably not well regarded for his tactics and techniques at the time, ended up, you know, paying the price of incarceration, but came out with a capacity to to forgive and refocus uh, and yet still focus on the whole, the whole issue of, of equal rights and fairness, uh, but then ultimately come through uh, and be the president uh, of the of the nation that incarcerated him. I think that's a pretty special story, and I would have loved to have just sat down and have a good chat with him about that one day. Yeah, brilliant answer. Mm. Well, Commissioner Fitzsimmons, really appreciate you taking the time out today. Congratulations on uh, such an amazing career and some amazing efforts to date, and certainly look forward to following uh, your next part of this career uh, very closely. So thank you very much for joining us on Crisis Talks. Thanks, Grant. Really appreciate it. Great to catch up. That concludes Series 2, Episode 9 of Crisis Talks. In the next episode, we sit down with Clint Honeycutt and talk through the BP Macondo oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll walk through the first few weeks of the incident, talking about what happened behind the scenes as part of the emergency response and how that tied into the wider crisis response.